so you'll get it sooner or later. Some announcements before we go further. Uh, we have a barbecue planned for tomorrow evening at 3.30 uh, here. It's supposed to be nice and warm. I don't know whether we'll eat outside today or not. We're kind of watching to see if the wind keeps going. It was supposed to be warm today, clearing as the afternoon went on, and then some wind was to kick up. So the wind is starting to kick a little bit, so we'll see. We can move everything inside and eat in here if we need, if we need to. But a barbecue tomorrow at 3.30, and then for you here as well as uh, those out on the phone lines, We'll have Bible studies on tomorrow, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at 6.30 our time. So you have to translate that based on where you are in the country. But Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, Bible studies here at 6.30. And I guess there's a sign-up sheet for finger food somewhere. Maybe it's over on that table. I don't know. I don't see it here. Uh, to, to have on those evenings. Well, not Sunday because the barbecue, but Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Then, of course, Thursday is the uh, last high day after seven days of unleavened of bread, and we'll meet at 1 o'clock on Thursday. So, pretty simple. <clears throat> Just as a brief review for those who were not able to hear yesterday, uh, I went into... Uh, a little detail on how God is a planner. He is a prepper. He plans and prepares things way, way, way ahead of time. He considers every eventuality, all the things that could uh, possibly uh, occur, and has an answer for all of them. So he is a very, very careful planner. He looks ahead. He tells us at times, look to the ant, you sluggard, who prepares all summer for the winter, and uh, other examples in the Bible that we should be prepared. And certainly, uh, we have to look beyond just something physical to being prepared spiritually. Uh, That's always the bottom line for us. A certain amount of physical preparation for some things may be important, but spiritual preparation is never unimportant. It's always the optimal thing to do. Now, I went through some of Genesis and the creation to show how intimately and carefully God planned before He even began creating. So we won't go back through that. Uh, I don't know where all this series of sermons is going to go during these days. Uh, Where I went yesterday, I had not planned on. I was looking at Moses and some things in his life that I wanted to bring out along with the Exodus since it is Passover time. And uh, it led to some other thoughts and then some other thoughts. So I've got thoughts coming from several directions. And the overall thing that I would like for us to take from all this is encouragement, strength, faith for encouragement, faith for endurance to the end, all the things that we need spiritually right now to withstand what is just ahead of us is my main thought and uh, motivation here. And I have several different directions that this may go, so if it seems a little disjointed in some ways, it hops from perhaps subject to subject in a way, 
it all comes back to that statement I just made, to prepare us for what is ahead for us and where we need to be and what we need to do and information from Scripture that might help us uh, to do just that. Be prepared, be ready, and know what we need to be doing and getting it done. So with that, I also had in mind to go through the lives of, at least briefly, some of the people that God used throughout history uh, and some of the things that they did go through, as outlined briefly at least in Hebrews 11, uh, because we are some that God is working with now uh, to do a work and actually to initiate a new work, because one is finished after about 70 years and is dead, and now a new must arise and be done. And we are here to be part of that, and the more we can understand from the past, which was written for us, upon whom the ends of the world have come, and we're the only ones upon whom it has really come, even though that statement was used by Paul in reference to himself and the people at that time, uh, in a way it had come, but not in the way that it has today and is today. So with that thought in mind, let's go back again to the book of Genesis and understand something here of a situation because uh, Paul mentions Abel, righteous Abel, in Hebrews 11. And this is interesting because Adam and Eve, as I described yesterday, had everything going for them. Everything was beautiful. Everything was perfect. All they had to do was obey God uh, about one thing. They only had one commandment. That was it. Don't touch that tree. And that they could not stand. Uh, human nature was right there, just below the surface, waiting to be uncovered. God had built their minds with that in mind, and He set them up, if you will, in a way, you might say God framed them. Now, he tempts no man. Satan does that. But God had it all set up so that the tree would be there, Satan would be there, their minds, which had not been corrupted, would be there and be ready to be corrupted. And you see from the story, it didn't take long for that to happen. Well, God had this all figured out ahead of time and had the situation in mind to do this, and he knew what they would do. Now, he didn't tempt them to do it. God tempts no man. But he set the things up so that the tempter and the accuser could come, and he knew how they would react. That's why he was able to say, before the foundations of the world were laid, that Christ would have to die for mankind. And that Adam would be the first one to represent all people on earth, and he would sin. Christ would be the only other one who would represent all people on earth, and he would not sin. They knew this all ahead of time. Had it all figured out, planned very carefully and intricately. 
Now, what happened when human nature came out of Adam and Eve's minds and took over? First of all, notice how quickly Satan was able to do his work. And I might remind us in the end time, when he comes up against the camp of God at the end uh, of the millennium, maybe even before the millennium once, and at the end of the millennium again, and he's only released for a short season, but he is able in a very short while to convince millions and millions of people that he is God and that they should follow him instead of the Father and the Son. He is very wily, he is very powerful, and we'll see some of that here uh, probably today in what he is able to do. Now, what happened to that family? Well, first of all, Adam immediately blamed Eve, and Eve immediately blamed Satan, and then it got bad from there, I'm sure, because now things were tough. They'd been kicked out of a beautiful place, and now there were thorns and thistles and mosquitoes and snakes and all kinds of things around that they hadn't had to contend with before. And I am sure that having accused each other before God, it didn't get any better after that, maybe for a long, long time. And probably, as married people do, they tended to remember accusations that were hurled back and forth. And any time there was a tough time, and there were a lot of tough times for them, uh, those things got brought up again and again and again. How they ever got together to have kids, I don't know, but somehow they did. Well, they grew up in what I would imagine was a very dysfunctional household with Adam and Eve blaming each other and not getting along and probably fighting pretty regularly. And this went on over a period of hundreds of years. Uh, Cain and Abel were born. Now, Cain probably was influenced pretty heavily by his parents, and they were in rebellion against God. Nothing shows that they ever really repented of that. Uh, they blamed God, I'm sure. They blamed Satan. Uh, well, it's right there in the story that he blamed God. It's the woman you gave me. <laughs> You're the one that gave me this woman, so it's your fault. And... Those boys could not have helped but hear and see this all their lives. So when it came time to offer an offering to God, uh, they knew how. They knew what they should offer. Adam and Eve didn't know much except don't touch that tree, apparently, in the garden. But right after that, they learned from God the things that they should do, and when Offerings should be brought, and what were proper offerings, because obviously Cain and Abel knew. And Cain rebelled and says, I'm bringing carrots and broccoli. Uh, thank you very much. And God hadn't ordained that they bring carrots and broccoli. So uh, Cain was in rebellion against God. Uh, Abel brought a proper offering. These two sons grew up in the same family. One took after the parents, 
and Satan and lived pretty much apparently according to the way they were. The other had an uphill battle. It doesn't say when Seth was born or when brothers and sisters came along in that long period of time that was there, but other people did come along. And this must have been quite a way down the road because Cain, when he was marked by God, had said, people will kill me if they see who I am. So there were other people that had been born in the meantime. And, you know, it only takes 20, 30 years for people to grow up. And if you're living hundreds of years, and it expands pretty rapidly. So Abel had a tough time. Now, you think you've got a tough time. What if your parents were, were as bad as it appears Adam and Eve were? And what if your brother was as mean and ornery and nasty enough to ultimately kill you? I don't suspect that they were getting along too well before this. There had probably been fights and problems between them because one was trying to follow God. The other one was following parents and Satan in the world. So, when God would not accept Cain's offering and accepted Abel's, all of this came to the surface. It was more than Cain figured he could handle, so he killed his brother. Now, Abel is called righteous Abel by Paul. And I do believe that being in that list in Hebrews 11, Abel will be in the kingdom of God as one of the first fruits. Other than Christ, he might be the first of the human first fruits, uh, having been the son of Adam and Eve. But you and I think we have it tough sometimes. How would you have liked to have grown up under those circumstances and then tried to follow a righteous life serving God. Now, we have it stacked against us in a lot of ways, the society around us, our families, our friends, sometimes our mates. And yet, I don't think it's as bad as it was when Abel was trying to do what was right. So, However it happened, through those years, and he lived a lot longer than we do, he managed to stay faithful to God and bring a righteous offering and be a righteous person. Enoch is a very interesting thing. Uh, people back then lived 900, nearly 1,000 years. Methuselah was the oldest, at a, was it 969 or something like that. Uh, lived a long, long time. And... They were pretty near as old as Al here. Well, that's a, it's a strange thing in a way. I, I brought Al back from uh, up at Zion yesterday. and Here's this old man. After that meal, I was so sleepy. And uh, I think I rattled the... the uh, well, what, you can't even say the word. The... Uh, the, the rumble strips on both sides quite a few times. And Al what didn't even sleep, that I best I could tell. I think he was scared to. <laughs> I didn't stop and take a five, ten minute nap. I just couldn't stay awake. So anyway, uh, we made it, thankfully. 
But Enoch uh, was born, and he didn't live as long as everybody else. Now, here again, God had a plan in mind. And Enoch was not a part of the plan that God was going to work out. Uh, And here he was in chapter 5, verse 21. Enoch lived 65 years and begat Methuselah, who would become the oldest man to ever live. And yet Enoch would not live anywhere near that long. Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 uh, years and begat sons and daughters. So he had his own family. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And he walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, the Protestants will tell you that he took him to heaven, and he didn't have to die. Uh, And yet Acts tells us, No man has ascended except he which came down, not even David, who was a man after God's own heart. Uh, So Enoch did not go to heaven. And it says, all his days were 365 years. So, God apparently removed him from the vile, violent society he was living in. Uh, He was a righteous man, and perhaps the only one at this point who was still around, even though Noah, let's see, did Noah, uh, Noah might have overlapped him some, Methuselah, died. Lamech lived 182 years and begat a son named Noah. So uh, Adam didn't even come along till Methuselah was dead, apparently. I meant Adam. I meant Noah. Uh, so Enoch was the only righteous man, apparently, during his day. Everybody else was violent, mean, nasty, angry. And God said, I don't have a plan to do anything about things yet. And why should this righteous man have to live another five, six hundred years with these people around him? So, he died after having lived 365 years. Now, to me, that is an interesting time frame. 365 years. We know from other scriptures that a day is is as a year in prophecy. (coughs) So, did God bring that out in Methuselah's life? He could have cut him short a day. He could have made him last uh, a year, made him last another year. But he died at 365. And the immediate question that comes into mind is, well, why 365? when there was only a 360-day year then, which I think we've proven conclusively, and even in uh, the sequence of events in Adam's time, it showed there was a 30-day month times 5 was 150 days, so it couldn't have been 29 to 31-day months. Well, I think that just shows again God's planning. Now, He was going to do some work later on. And God already knew all the way back then that he was going to change it to a 365-day year. Now, we live with that today, so this may be one of the first prophecies in the Bible. Things are going to change. 
And he used a righteous man uh, and his lifetime perhaps to show that. I don't know that that's exactly what God had in mind, but to me it's kind of an interesting observation uh, that God would have known way back, 365, when it was only a 360. Now, I want to go to Noah as well. Paul mentions him. But there's an awful lot in Noah's life that I think is very, very important for us to grasp. You think you've lived in a time of sin. Noah had lived 500 years in a very violent world where people just killed each other left and right. Wars, fighting, murder going on all the time. 500 years of that. And God allowed it. Now we find, as we read on down in chapter 6, verse 9, that Noah found grace in God's eyes, and he was a just man, and perfect in his generations, and walked with God, just as Enoch had. So he was the only one in his age, in his time, who recognized and walked with God, he was all alone in walking with God for 500 years. Now, some of us feel like we've been at this a long time, after 40, 50, 60 years, don't we? And we've had church people around us. We've had a church around us for most of that time. Other believers around us. The Spirit of God, in a way that was not available back then, perhaps to a very, very few, God gave His Spirit in a way that they understood. But 500 years that went on. Now, verse 32, Noah was 500, of chapter 5, Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So, it might be that they were triplets. It doesn't say it as such. Uh, out of those three came the uh, all the races that we know today, the main three races, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, white, black, and yellow. Brown is just a mixture of all those. There were only three. And that must have come through their wives, uh, best we can uh, figure, because it's he was 500 and he begat them. It doesn't say begat them all at once. They could have been born perhaps one after the other, but uh, if he was 500 when he begat them, then uh, it says that twice. Let's see. We'll go on down. Well, maybe I'll come across it here because it, oh yeah, here in chapter 6, verse 10, God told about Noah's righteousness, and it says Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Says it twice. We just read it up in the last verse of 5, and then we see it again in 6 and verse 10. And I think that is important because it says right after he reiterates it, says it again, that the earth was corrupt 
And God said to Noah, and there doesn't seem to be a time lapse there. So he was apparently 500 years old when these three were conceived. And then we find a little later on that he was 600 when the floods came. So the preparing of the ark from the time it was given here, it appears that there were 100 years involved. I think that's important. I'm going to go back to Hebrews 11 just for a moment and read one statement Paul made here that I think is very important to this story. Hebrews 11, uh, verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, God told him, I am going to do something, but Noah hadn't seen anything. He had nothing to go by except God's word that he was going to do some things. But God told him some, what to do, and he was moved with fear. He had at least the beginning of wisdom. He feared what God said. Prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Now was Noah a prepper? He spent a hundred years building a prep boat. He was getting prepared for what was coming. A hundred years. Prepared an ark for the saving of his house. That's what preppers do today. They try to get ready to save their house, to save their hides from what is coming. That they understand is coming by the things they're looking at. Anyway, by the which he condemned the world. Now, there's a phrase that I was wanting to get to. He did what God told him, and he spent a hundred years building a boat. That's a long, long time to go out every day except Sabbath and work on a boat. But when that boat was done, a hundred years later, everybody on earth was drowned except eight people. And he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. He kept the faith for a hundred years. The world hated what he was doing. They were all ungodly, except for him. And I don't know whether he built the ark a long way from water or not. In his mind, it might not have mattered, because he knew God was going to flood the earth, and it was going to float no matter where it was. I've read stories and heard anecdotes about people who have built boats in their garages or in their backyards, Spent years getting them all built, and then couldn't get them out of the backyard or the garage. Because <laughs> they hadn't really planned well. The, the boat was bigger than the garage door. Taller and wider, maybe. Who knows? And they couldn't get it out. So you've either got to disassemble the boat, or knock the end out of the garage, or something. So much for man's preparation. But anyway, God had this thing all figured out way ahead of time. And Noah condemned the world by what he did.
Now, I find it interesting that the first work that God did on this earth, you can't say that Abel really did a work. You can't say that Enoch really did a work. Noah was the first to do God's work on the earth. That is a project whereby God was going to accomplish something. Now, Abel did works. Don't get me wrong. He brought the right sacrifices and did the right things and walked with God, and so did Enoch. So there was some work done, and there's speculation. Enoch might have had a college for people to... I don't know that you can prove that uh, one way or another, but he did take him very young, and he didn't have to put up with people more than that. But Noah did for 500 years, and then... Shem, Ham, and Japheth came along, who would be used to help uh, repopulate the earth, them and their wives. Now, this work lasted 100 years, and then the population of the earth was destroyed, condemned. He set a righteous example for 100 years. He built it just like God said. He kept the faith all that 100 years. His kids grew up and became boat builders, I'm sure, because that's what Dad was doing. That's all Dad was doing, was building a boat. So I'm sure as soon as they were big enough to help, they were out there helping build a boat. Now, it appears that that lasted 100 years, maybe a month or two, I don't know, one way or another. Now, here in the end time... God is doing another work. And I find that it is interesting that when God begins something, and then He ends something, He is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, and He does things in patterns. Now, the first work that God did on the earth through Noah was a hundred years. And then Noah and his family were delivered at the end of that hundred years. Now, God did other things through history. He did uh, different works through Moses, through various ones, and those lasted various amounts of time. And the 430 years in Moses' day is repeated for the end time, a period of 430 years, where Ezekiel laid on his side for Judah and Israel 430 years. So God has used varying amounts of time, but I want to point at the very first work and then look at the second most, the, the most important work to follow that first one that had to do with whether mankind would survive or not. See, Adam and Eve made it so that man could not survive. God, through Noah, made a possibility that man could survive because God had been sad that he had even created man. We had gotten so bad. But he couldn't ignore the fact that here was one man obeying him. And he said, all right, I'll spare them because of one man. So Noah, being righteous, spared the whole world from being completely gone. Now, the next time that that occurred was not with Abraham or with Moses, but with Christ here on the earth. 
as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now that work lasted about a hundred years. Christ was born, 33 when he began his ministry, but the work was there all along, wasn't it? From the time he was born forward, he could not sin. What greater work is there on the earth than a human being never sinning? As a child, as a young man, as a middle-aged man, Middle age, you know, is about 33 to 35. <laughs> we like to think of it as 45 to 50 because we don't want to admit it at 35, but whatever. But that work lasted about 100 years. 33 and a half years, or 30, 30 years, uh, 33 and a half years by the time he finished his ministry. And then it was pretty well over by 100 A.D. when is about the time when the last apostle John died, and you never saw much of it after that. The Catholic Church came into prominence through Simon Magus, and the Church of God basically died out. Now, there may have been a few through the ages, because it says it will never die, uh, but it would stay alive. So there were a few people through the Middle Ages we've tried to trace, but it's difficult to show that there were truly believers uh, from the time of 100 A.D. on. So, we are now at a time when mankind is in jeopardy as to whether he will live or die forever. Christ said, here at the end time, if he did not cut it short, no flesh would be saved alive. So this is the third time in the history of man, in 6,000 years, that we've come to the point where God is going to bring man's existence to a halt completely, unless it be cut short. It was going to be cut short in Noah's day, and God gave it a hundred years for him to do a work which condemned the world up to that point. And they all died, save eight, which God used to start over. Now, in Christ's day... He started over with a spiritual church, with a new covenant. Because man was destined to die under the old covenant and never live eternally. So he made a covenant whereby we could achieve eternal life and live forever with no tears, no sorrow, no pain, no trouble, forevermore. And God used a hundred-year period to do that. To begin the church when Christ was a middle-aged man and then died and was resurrected for us. And then to let it continue for about 70 years before Satan and the world had destroyed it. And people falling away had destroyed it. Now let's fast forward. 1926, 1927, 1900 years, as Herbert Armstrong often said, 1900 years after Christ uh, began, actually began a work, 26, 27, when he uh, proclaimed there in Luke 4 the, uh, the Jubilee. 1900 year 
years later, 3,800, I mean, uh, 38 Jubilee cycles, 37 actually, he began to work with Herbert Armstrong in 1926 and 27. That's the time Christ was preparing for his ministry. And that is going to last about 100 years. Now, it is divided into about 70 years and about 30 years. Christ was divided from the first 30 years, him growing up not sinning, and then about 70 years whereby the work would continue before it basically died out. So it was 30 plus 70, and then here at the end, it's going to be 70 plus 30. A total of about 100, I mean, 100 years, yeah. From the Jubilee, 26, 20, 1926, 27, until Christ returns and then sets up uh, His government in 2026, 27, it seems to be the most likely time being exactly 2,000 years since Christ declared a jubilee uh, in the 26-27 time frame. Now, Herbert Armstrong's work lasted about 70 years, and it died. Dead, gone, just like the early New Testament church was gone after about 70 years. In 1996-97, God began to reveal that which... Uh, tells the story of the last 30 years of the final work. Now, it says in Haggai that there was the former temple, lasted 70 years, and died. I think Herbert Armstrong and Worldwide Church of God were indeed Sardis, and it died. And it was at that time that he began revealing what must be done in the last 30 years. And we've gone through over 23 of those now. And there's only about seven years left before the 100 years is complete. So the first temple under Herbert Armstrong died. And now there must be a greater temple built. And it will only last a short while before it is defiled and taken over by the beast power and Satan. And they will rule it for three and a half years and it will come to an end. Did God start a pattern a long time ago with Noah and continue it with Christ and then the New Testament church and then continue it with Herbert Armstrong for 70 years, stop it, and then have about 30 years left to finish building the last temple to build Jerusalem and then... The tribulation start. Perhaps the seven last plagues will be cut short in order that man might be saved alive and have a hundred million left to repopulate during the millennium, even as only eight uh, were preserved at first. And hardly anybody was preserved of what Christ built during his life and thereafter. And there's very little left of what Herbert Armstrong built and thereafter. So something else has to be built. Now that brings us to you and me. God gave you, He gave me, that knowledge. 
Now, obviously, he wants us to be a part of that. He hasn't brought in his 10% yet. He brought a prep crew to get some things ready, to prepare a little ahead of time for when he does some things, some signs and wonders that are going to bring his 10% to get this job done. And if it begins this year, it gives us about two and a half years, if you consider Christ returning in 26 and the millennium starting the Jubilee in 27, after the bride and Christ are together a year uh, at God's throne. If it is until next year, that gives us about a year and a half to build a temple, unless it isn't complete when the order to build Jerusalem comes and work on the temple continues even as Jerusalem goes up. The time, as I'm saying, I think very short. Now, God called Noah to do a work, and he did it. And God called his son to do a work, and he delegated to some of his apostles, and they did it. And when the time, a hundred years, was up, it ended. It's at least as far as its visibility. Then he brought Herbert Armstrong out, and it lasted about 70 years and ended, at least as far as its real visibility. And only a few remain. So of those, he sent a few to prepare. Some of them did not endure. They gave up. They found excuses. They went back where they came from. They died. I didn't know this was going to last as long as it had when it first began to be apparent that God was showing a story in the Bible. We've got to endure. Blessed are those who endure to the end. We can't give up. We can't quit. You know, I'll bet there were days when old Noah, being 550 or 60 years old by then, Man, I don't want to go out and cut planks today. And that pitch and that tar, oh, that sticky stuff. A hundred years. I've gotten frustrated just building a house at times. Don't want to go out and work on it today. This is hard work. It must have been times when he thought, Really? Yeah, well, I'm old. My memory's getting bad, but really? I don't know. He was a righteous man and faithful. Maybe he didn't question God. Maybe he just said, Boss, that's what you said. I'm building a boat. And he got up every day. And he moved with fear, remember? He was afraid, maybe, he wouldn't get it built in time. After all, a hundred years and... You know how contracts go. There's always overruns at the end. When you start building a skyscraper or something, it usually takes months or years to finish it after when they said it would be done. So he probably was motivated every morning. <laughs> I've only got a hundred years. I better get busy. You know, there may have been an awful lot of different emotions that went through Noah during that time. Do you ever have a lot of different emotions? Do you try to sort out and keep your mind clear of what God would have us do, and it's not happening exactly when and how I thought, 
and my imagination's running amok with me, and I'm getting old. I had a thought this morning that was kind of interesting to me. Noah went for a hundred years getting that work done. Christ in the church went a hundred years getting that work done. The most important ever to save mankind was Christ. This one at the end is to finish out his bride and to keep the rest of the population of the earth from totally dying off. So it's important too. But it says there will be some old men around who saw the first temple in its glory and they will remember the last and be able to compare. And I just happened to think of an old man sitting here who's 92. And it occurred to me to ask him, when were you born? March of 1927. If this thing all winds up, in 2027, we got a man sitting right here who will be 100 years old. Lived through the whole thing. Didn't know about it at first. Didn't learn about it till decades later. Didn't become a part of it until maybe decades after that. But we got one sitting right here in this little group that I believe will probably live to see it all. Now, he don't know how long he's going to live. But I have scriptures that tell me that God planned way, way, way ahead of time. And he knew what he was doing. And he wrote all of those scriptures in Haggai and Zechariah thousands of years ago that would say exactly what would happen. And he knew it would be a hundred years. And all these things that God knew way ahead of time that we only just recently found out about. And the people who read all of those prophecies all those thousands of years and hundreds of years and these decades in the church never figured out. And God has just opened them to us like a book. And one of the things He tells us that he's going to make us young. Isaiah 35. The deaf will hear. The lame will walk. The blind will see. He'll give us legs like deer so we can run up and down the streets and work on the temple. He says that. So I may think he barely gets around and can't get out of the car, but he may be running up and down the street pretty soon. And he might very easily live another seven, eight years. Okay? I'm not in the predicting business necessarily, but hey, when he told me he was born in 27, Herbert Armstrong got his training in 26 and 27, and here was a man who began his life about that time frame. be about 100 years. I find that very interesting. And here he sits. And in pretty good health. Better than a lot of us who are younger. Anyway, Noah went through ridicule and hate and animosity and laughed at for a hundred years. You and I got hated, laughed at a little bit. I'm hated right here on this place. 
had been anywhere near a hundred years. But I've been accused of all kinds of things that I didn't do. And not accused of a lot of things I did do. That's weird. <laughs> they don't know. They don't know. They don't know what I thought yesterday or ten years ago. They don't know what I did yesterday or ten years ago. They have no clue. But they've got wild imaginations. You know, here was poor Noah. And those people were as ignorant, as ungodly, as violent, as mean and nasty as any people who've ever lived on the face of the earth. And you can, you can bet that the only righteous man walking the face of the earth got an awful lot of ridicule. An awful lot. Now, Paul touches on that a little bit and at the end of his dissertation there in Hebrews 11 about how they stopped the mouths of lions and so on. Just made a, just a little brief statement about it. But I wanted to open this up a little more and, and let us maybe take in what some of those people really went through. And I'm, I'm sure I'm just barely scratching the surface with the few things I can say about Noah. And what he went through. But what does that give us? I hope that it gives us trust and faith and that God will accomplish what he says. Now, Noah came to understand. After all that time, God said, okay, get in the boat. Okay, I wait, wait, you told me to round up all these animals. Got to get them in too. <clears throat> Probably already had food in for them. He had been planning for a long time. What if he had not planned ahead of time and suddenly God didn't say anything? Here comes seven clean and unclean. I mean, seven clean and a pair of unclean of everything that walked the earth. And they started walking up the ramp. And he says, Oh my, I forgot about. Hey, I forgot about birdseed. I forgot about, oh, so many things. And we don't have any shovels. What am I going to do? No, he had it all figured out way ahead of time. And I, I think that Adam and, I mean, Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives probably shoveled a lot of poop for a lot of months. And they had it all planned. Now, this ark was sealed. What did they do? Did they have a composter? <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't give us all the detail, does it? You know what? God doesn't give us all the detail in here of what will go on. And he didn't with the men he used and the women he used. He didn't tell them everything he was going to do. He'd give them a glimmer. He'd give them a statement. Go build a boat. Make it this big. Go to it. Oh, I've never built a boat before. I don't know how to do this. What do I do? Perhaps there are others who had built boats. In a thousand years of accumulation of knowledge, there could have been a lot of things done that would mystify us and amaze us today in terms of technology that existed. I don't know. But anyway, it was a monstrous program that he had. 
Now, was he able to hire some people to help him out of the violent criminals on earth? I doubt it. Has God ever employed essentially the unconverted to do his work? No, he's used faithful, converted, loyal people who wanted to get his work done. Now, have there been some who came in occasionally who claimed to be part of that work, but were working against it the whole time? I think of a couple names. Raider, Tkach, you could probably name a few more. But do they really help the work? Did they help build a boat, the church? No, not really, because they were working from the inside out to destroy it all along. Just as we have people in Washington, D.C., who are doing that in that swamp right at the moment. They're there to subvert the government of the United States to destroy it, to subvert Trump and destroy him, and on and on and on it goes, and to destroy each other. And Jeremiah tells us that they are going to do that. There'll be civil war and violence in the land, ruler against ruler. So they're throwing words now, and they're going to start throwing bullets sooner or later, and they're going to start killing each other in Washington. Some people wouldn't have trouble believing that. I don't. Do you? It says it right there in the Scripture. Black and white. Aren't we amazingly well-informed, brethren, of all the things that God is going to do? He didn't say a whole lot to... Uh, Abel, that we know of. Don't know how much he said to Enoch. We have just a brief description of what he might or might not have said to Noah and told him to get to work. But we have the testimony of prophet after prophet after prophet that tells us all the different things that are going to happen right now and are happening in our day and age. Herbert Armstrong never understood his work. God didn't give him enough information so that he could understand his work. He thought till the day he died, so far as I know, that he was supposed to preach the gospel around the world as a witness, and then the end would come. Now, that's over 30 years ago. The end hasn't come, but his end came. He never understood. Now, you and I can look back and we can understand that God intended Herbert Armstrong to fulfill Matthew 28, 19, and 20. To go out and do a calling work, build a church, give some warning to the world, but basically it was a friendly work. I had trouble with that at times, back then. Because I thought, why are we talking about platypuses and dolphins when we could be reading Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel? <clears throat> why are we trying to convince people that it's not evolution and that there is a God and do it for years and years and years and not much else of a message? I used to get angry sometimes when I would tune in Garner Ted, and he wouldn't talk about God much. It was about whether stuff evolved or not. That frustrated me. And yet, the work, the church, continued to grow through all those years that he was going through that kind of stuff. 
because they weren't called to give the world a last warning. They were called to call many, out of which few would be chosen. Out of the 100% called under them, 10% will be called to do the 30-year last work. And most of it is the last seven years, not 30. Most of what needs to be done is yet ahead of us. So I had trouble understanding, because I also thought Matthew 24:14 was our job. And when I saw that they were not warning the world of coming destruction in Israel of our destruction, it bothered me. Now, after he died, and I see what was accomplished, and I understand some of these scriptures, oh, it makes sense. His was a calling work. Many are called, few are then chosen. So we're in that period of time when the 70 years was up and Sardis died, that many had been called, and now very shortly God is going to call 10%. He's called just a very, very few individuals to prepare a place for that, so that when it comes, it comes. And they have to do the final six, seven, eight years, whatever it is, of the work of warning the world. Now, the first job is not to the world. It's very clear in Revelation 11. The first job is take care of the church. That's what the two were doing in Zechariah 3 and 4, taking care of the church, getting the church ready, because the church has to do the final work. And it has to be an example, a light on the hills of Zion to the world that God is God and that God has chosen out a people and the blessings that can come upon them for righteousness. So there is a work to be done and it is far greater than that which was done by Herbert Armstrong. Once the few are chosen, they have a big job to do. They've got to build a temple. They've got to build Jerusalem. And then they have to give a three-and-a-half-year warning, final warning to the world. The beast power will be in charge, the false prophet, and they will go head-to-head -head against them day after day after day. The plagues of Egypt will occur. All kinds of things will happen. And when that period of time is done, very likely, best I can figure, 2026. Fire will have proceeded from their mouths. They will have told the world exactly what is wrong with it, what is wrong with the satanic system, called the beast and the false prophet, every foul name you can imagine, and gotten right in their faces. <clears throat> And God has already planned well ahead of time the end of the story. Jerusalem will have been built. The beast and false prophet will take it over. Satan will set up his government up here in the true Jerusalem. And then there will be a final battle that will be waged between the beast and the prophets of God. 
in the streets of Jerusalem. They'll have gone all over the world and preached the gospel. Warned the world. Final battle there. And I'm sure it will be quite a battle. Because God will have given power that anybody who threatened them, fire would come out of their mouths and destroy them. And that's what will have been going on for three and a half years. And in that final battle, as both sides are getting after it as hard as they can go, suddenly God is going to remove His protection. Gone. And they die. Killed right there in the streets of Jerusalem. And lay there. They don't bury them. But they send notes to each other about what a wonderful thing they've done. They finally got rid of these representatives of God, and we can now worship Satan and the beast and the false prophet in peace. They'll lay right there in the street. Won't be won't move. I suspect the birds, the ravens will come peck their eyes out. I suspect flies will swarm around them and lay hundreds of thousands of eggs in their eye sockets, in their noses and mouths. And the world will rejoice and think what a wonderful thing it is that we finally kill these two prophets of that God. And three and a half days later, they get up and fly away. (laughs) And the work is finished. Now God has called you to be part of that work. I'm going to give you some more examples because I think we need all we can get of people who went through unimaginable things and were faithful to God throughout their lives, never gave up, never gave in, trusted Him no matter what things looked like. And we're called to do the same.